I greet you all in the wonderful name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's always uh, not easy to do a testimony, you know. Um, I think it was Mike Wanky, the Satanist, who said that it took him nine years before he could do his testimony properly. You know, otherwise it just becomes a sin-boasting session. You know, it's a, you know, I did this and whatever. And to get the right balance and to give God the glory that he deserves, it's not easy to uh, set out a testimony. You have to be extremely careful in that. I remember when that wrestler, uh, I forget his name now, uh, he got saved, you know, that huge guy. What, what is his name again, man? We know him quite well. No, anyway, Jimmy Abbott. And he got saved, you know. And he just got saved, and I saw all the signboards up in the streets in Brooklyn, and they'd saying, come here, you know, uh, Jimmy Abbott's got saved, you know. And what, I mean, what is he going to tell them? So his whole message was like 40 minutes of how many guys he beat up and how many he damaged in his life. And then he said, at the end, I got saved. You know, that's the wrong balance, you know. We should be giving God the glory somewhere along the line, not boasting of all the things that we did in our past life. So it's, it's quite a uh, difficult balance sometimes in giving a testimony. But I want to open a scripture, Revelations 5 verse 2. It says, Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? Who is worthy, who is worthy in this world is a question asked by many people. When I was a young man, I asked this question. Is there anybody worthy, worthy on this earth that I might serve? Anybody, you know, I'd gotten so disillusioned with people and with life and the way that I grew up that I lost faith in the human race completely. I read books on the great kings of the earth. I read stories of the great men of the earth. I read fiction of the great men of the earth. And I could never find an answer as a young man. You know, we were all into Bruce Lee in those days, you know what I mean? You know? And then he died from a disparate, you know, took a disparate. It's like, what the heck, you know? Then he went out the door, you know? He read of King Arthur, and he was the real deal, but he saw his fall with Guinevere and Lancelot. So, as I say, we took Bruce Lee as our example as young men, you know, and we were disappointed when we went to church in Kenilworth. We was, I was living in Kenilworth at that time. You know, we went to church and Jesus was portrayed in the Sunday school as this very sad face. The picture up on the wall there of the halo around his head and handing out fishes, you know what I mean? And there's a young boy like, nah, you know what I mean? I don't want to be like that oak, you know? On the back of my door, I've got like Bruce Lee and that's, you know, how we, the kind of example I wanted to be as a young man. We've got to be very careful how we portray Jesus to our youth and to the young men of the time. I went to Sri Lanka and uh, it's full of women, the churches, you know. I said to the pastor, where the men? Now he doesn't know. I said, you, you've got to change the way you're preaching. You know, you, the men are not interested in the Jesus that you're presenting to them. You know, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. You know, and I explained to him the Vikings were the greatest warrior nation that the world's ever seen. And they tried to find out what happened to the Vikings and they found they all became Christians. You see the cross in the British flag, in the Norwegian flag, in the Swedish flag. They became Christians. How did they reach the greatest warriors of the earth? You know what I mean? With, with Christ. Well, they taught a different Christ. They taught Christ is a conqueror, he's conquered death. 
He's coming back with an army one day riding on a white horse. He defeated the devil and all his demons. You know what I mean? He's the king of kings and lord of lords. And the Vikings said, hey, we like this guy. You know, they preached Christ the conqueror. And I think that we need to be very careful what, how we paint Christ to a, a young generation. You know what I mean? Instead of uh, we're not reaching our young men because of it. So unfulfilled, I tried to look for a good example all my life and I looked to man no more. And this could be the experience of many people. Man is, and the human race has disappointed us. Humans have failed us. At an early stage of one or two, I was taken from my mother and placed in the care of a couple in Woodstock. Uh, it wasn't an adoption. Now. They just put me there. There were like seven children all born to one lady. And then they took them all away and they were sent to different places. And I was sent there. And it was a house of torture, pain and fear. You know, they were really psychopathic in that house, you know. And I learned at an early age that darkness is not just darkness, but a real terrifying place, that it existed. I was removed from that home um, for my own, uh, the, by the welfare, and placed in foster care. It was a house that went from Woodstock to like Kenilworth. You know, it was a big jump in um, living standards. And uh, it was a house that had its own problems. And I was already pretty messed up. It was a house where violence and drunkenness carried on just as bad as it did in Woodstock. In Woodstock, they used to throw plates. I can remember before I was three years old, they used to throw plates at each other. And then when I was in the other house, they used to also throw plates at each other. The only difference was the plates were more expensive. You know, and I can remember my foster mom with a beehive of hair sitting with chicken in the hair as the plate came from. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's a, it's just crazy, you know, nothing had changed, you know. It's the same. So I, I knew the face of fear and loneliness as I grew up. I obviously picked up that spirit of fear from that house in Woodstock, you know, as a child. And I knew it like a demonic thing in my life, you know. I remember watching the film of Bruce Lee and how he died. And you see this, he used to dream of this huge samurai uh, warrior, you know what I mean? Meeting him in his dreams and he'd try and fight this thing. Obviously, it was a demonic thing, you know? He didn't know that, you know? And he was trying to fight this thing. He'd never win it. He'd always lose. It was like a curse put on his family, you know? And in the end, it got him, you know? And that's why he died like he did. But I knew that thing in my life is growing up, but no one would have guessed it. You know, I was the naughtiest guy around and, and whatever, but I knew what that demonic thing of fear was like. I fought it my entire life. And sometimes I won and sometimes I didn't. And I hated it. And I tried to read books on the subject to try and overcome it. You know what I mean? Every book on bravery I've read, every book on knights I've read. You know what I mean? Trying to defeat this thing that I knew was in my life that I couldn't get rid of. So that's how I grew up. I can, I can re never remember a time that I was happy or I felt loved on this earth until I was 17 and a young girl fell in love with me. Never knew it. You know, I, I didn't have it in the home before and I never had it in the house I was in. I would never want my youth back again. It holds no good memories for me. I'm glad I'm now 60 and ready to stand in the door one of these days and go to heaven. You know, I didn't have a happy youth. One of two things happen to a boy who is damaged from an early age. He either withdraws internally or he rebels. 
It depends on the nature of the boy. You know what I mean? If he's a fighter, he's going to rebel against everybody and everything. I rebelled and in my anger and rage and bitterness, I tried to destroy myself and all those around me. I was just on the road to the pits. You know, I didn't like where I lived. I didn't like the people there. You know, they made Dallas look like a Sunday school uh, party. I'm telling you the way they carried on. You know? you know, I hated everything about them. By then we were living in Bishop's Court. You know what I mean? And the, the hypocrisy and the darkness was so great, you know, that I hated that. You know, I never wanted to be any of them. You know, so I started to rebel. I, I was uh, kicked out of a couple of schools, Rondebosch boys being one of them, you know, I got lost. Really went down a road and uh, landed up in places of safety, even visits to prison at an early age. I was on a journey to nowhere, uh, you know, and I knew it, but I couldn't stop it. You know, I knew I was going nowhere and I didn't know how to stop going nowhere. There's a train running out of control down the track. And I remember reading this poem, and I don't know who wrote it, but you know, the one verse said, Who's in charge of the clattering train? The axles creak and the couples strain. The pace is hot and the points are near, and sleep has deadened the driver's ear. And the singles flash through the night in vain, for death is in charge of the clattering train. And that's, you know, I had nothing to live for, you know, nothing to be excited about, you know, and I was just falling into, some, into a great darkness. So I was expelled from two schools and landed up in a boys' home. In those days, it used to be an observatory called Teen Centre. Teen Centre was one step from an industrial school, last chance before industrial school. And this was a last chance home for naughty boys. And it was run by Christians, but with a rod of iron. The guy, the police used to come give us hidings. <laughs> he used to come back from school, and if you saw that Oaks Combi parked outside, you knew someone was getting a hiding today. Police hidings, you know, with the canes, the heavy canes. Anyway, it was run by Christians, and they were, they loved God, you know. Every Sunday we had to attend church in the evenings, we were forced to. And one day I believed in Christ in 1979 in my matric year. You know, I, I got convicted, you know, and I, and I believed. I believed in Christ. I knew Jesus died for me. I knew it. I knew it was true. And I lay awake for a couple of nights, and I think I had a gun under my pillow, quite literally. You know what I mean? And I was lying there, and I, and I believed, and I couldn't sleep for about three nights. I struggled, you know, with this. Uh, I believed that Christ was who he said he was. I knew it. But... I just couldn't bring myself to give my life to Christ. You know, there were so many things I wanted to do, many sins I wanted to commit, girls I wanted to sleep with, drunkenness and partings that I didn't want to miss, and I was desperate to go to the army. I've always wanted to be a soldier ever since I was adult. That's all I ever wanted to be, you know? And I thought, you know, if I'm going to become a Christian, I have to walk around with my Bible under my arm, cut my hair like a bowl, and walk around and have a miserable face. You know, and I just couldn't face that, you know, I just couldn't face that, you know, and I, and it's not true. It's not true, you know, had somebody explained that to me, the, who, what Christianity is, who Christ was, I would have been challenged as a young man to serve God. You know what I mean? Absolutely challenged. But the, the Christianity was painted to, to me and that looked to me was a weak and soft Christianity and I, and I backed off it and I said to God, I'm not ready. 
I said to him one night, I'm just, I'm not ready for this. I, I need to, I want to go and see life. Go to the army next year, you know, I want to see life. But you can't say that to God, you know. You can't, you can't just speak to God like that, you know. Salvation's for, to, uh, for today, it's not for tomorrow. Hebrews 3 verse 15 says, While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts in the provocation. God was looking into my future. And he was trying to reach me saying, you don't have to go there. And I think many of you know that too. God called us early sometimes saying there's a better road to follow, you know, and I mean, I've often regretted it, you know, even as old as I am, you know, of not listening in that year would have saved myself a world of trouble. When God calls you, you must answer now, not tomorrow. There might not be another tomorrow. No one told me that there'd be consequences for sin. I wish somebody told me that. You know what I mean? And that trying sin would lead to years of brokenness and pain. You see, you just think, well, I'm going to go and sin and have fun, but you don't realize there's a price tag to that. Always. How many of you know that when you walk away from God, then he lets you go? You know, I'm not going to, it's not going to run after us. We've got the wrong picture of Jesus. You know, we're painting a picture to the world that Jesus hangs on your feet, begging you to be saved. And that's not the, that's the wrong picture. He's sitting on a throne and we need to come on our knees asking to be saved. It's the wrong picture. So God had presented himself to me. I had rejected him and, and what he had to offer. And he left me for many, many years. And it would be six years later when my life was completely ruined that I would hear from God again. I, I lost God in the darkness of my life. Completely and utterly, I forgot there was a God. I fell into such a, a, a dark period of my life. I left school and went to the army and joined the paratroopers in 1980-81. I joined the paratroopers because I had a fear of heights. <laughs> so in my mind, this demonic thing in my life you know, I always try to conquer it by telling, doing what it told me not to do or made me afraid to do. It's crazy. It's like you're living a war in, in your whole, in your own, whole life. So I joined them and because they jumped out of airplanes, I thought that's the way to overcome my fear of heights. But it doesn't really. You learn to manage your fear. You don't overcome it. Only God can overcome it completely. What you do is learn to manage it. You know what I mean? So war was already in my heart and I fitted right into this elite fighting unit in the 80s, in the early 80s, 80, 81, in the, in the heart of the war. Before, 20, before I turned 20 years old, we had 14 mini battles, follow-up operations, operations of Protea, Carnation, Daisy, Sealing, major operations. In Operation Protea, we took two cities, you know what I mean, um, in, in, um, in Southern Angola. And our job was to take out eight kilometers of bunkers and trenches that the enemy had built, trench by trench, bunker by bunker. We cleaned that out. Daisy, all these, uh, we did many tracking ops with Kufuts. You know, we were very busy, very, very busy uh, in, in the art of war. I was a well-known atheist by now in the army. And for some reason, I hated Christ. I can't understand why or what he'd ever done to me. But that's how it came out now. You see, I'd given up on the Lord in matric, and now darkness had overtaken my life. 
And, you know, I was an antichrist to the guys inside there. I was always talking against God. And, you know, the other guys used to get cross with me, you know. Because, you know, the army was quite a religious place. You know, you had to always pray and all this kind of thing. And I don't know why I hated Christ. And often when I see people that hate the Lord today, if you ask them that, I don't think they can give you an answer either. But they say there are no atheists in the foxholes. It's true. One day we're attacking an enemy base and uh, early hours of the morning and uh, we're flying in V formations over the bush, uh, our company, in V chopper formations, we're moving in towards a base and our, the planes are bombing the base in front of us, you know. We can, we're watching out the sides of the choppers as we're coming in. We're watching the planes hitting the base, the bombers falling. And uh, our Pathfinder units, which is our free fall experts, have jumped in the night before and they're holding the drop zones for us. You know, and as we're coming closer, closer, we're watching the planes. We know we're going into this now, you know, and uh, we feel the choppers turn like that and start banking. And we can see the smoke coming out the landing zones where the, where the uh, Pathfinder units are. And the choppers start uh, coming slow, like in waves like this. The drop, go, drop, go. And I can remember sitting in there and thinking, I, I could die today, you know. Suddenly occurred to me, I could die today. And then where am I going to be? And we grew up in schools where they taught about hell. You know, so everybody knew about hell in my day. You know, nowadays they don't know about it. And uh, I sat there and I felt a very cold chill as I realized I might not be coming back here today again. You know? So in the noise of the choppers, because nobody can hear what you're saying in the choppers, you know, because the noise is so loud. I tried to make a bargain with God, you know. I said that if I survived this operation, you know, I'd stop smoking and maybe not drink so much. <laughs> you know, we're turning our, our, our bush hats inside out and putting a red dot on our heads so our own gunships don't kill us as we're starting to land now. Anyway, when the battle was finished, we regrouped. You know what I mean? And we're smoking a little cigarette. I forgot what I'd said to God. You know, suddenly your religious convictions are gone. You know, you, you, you got through it. But how many of you know there are no deals between lions and men? You can't make deals with God like that. If you're not saved God's way, it's the highway. You get only saved God's way. You know, you can't make up some little deal with God in the chopper. Before, If I died, I would have gone to the pits. You know, so, you know, you can't do that. You've got to, do, you've got to get saved the Lord's way. So we saw a lot of action in our unit, the major operations in, in, uh, during the time that I was there. And these experiences are detailed in a fellow soldier's book called 19 with a Bullet by Granger Korf, which only came out in 2014. I think it was 2014, round about there, you know, um, where my fire and movement partner wrote this book, you know, I think for his own healing, you know, he's a top boxer, fighter, but, uh, you know, he was quite a soft guy and the war affected him quite badly. So I think he got it out by writing this book. And he, it's I look very bad in that book, by the way. You know what I mean? Because I wasn't a Christian at all. But um, it shocked our families. Because nobody actually believed anything that we ever told them. You know what I mean? They just thought we were lying. You know, and um, so it was a huge shock. My uh, foster brother, who wasn't talking to me because I'd lost the plot in my life, phoned me after reading the book and he said, 
I just want to tell you something. He said, we didn't know. And I want to tell you, I gave my life to Christ after reading that. You know, that they didn't realize that we as young men and lots of your fathers and that, you know, face things that they don't probably even talk to you about. But we fought Russian forces, Cuban forces, tanks. I have a picture of a tank being shot right out in front of us, in front of me in Granjakov. You know what I mean? We took on tanks, everything that the enemy could throw at us. All the weapons we fought against were uh, supplied by Russia. Russian advisors, Cuban soldiers, FAPLA, MPLA. We fought against vast armies and there were few of us. And I tell you that because you don't know what your fathers went through. Few of us stood against many and we won. We were never defeated in one battle. All the years, we defeated the Russian-backed army. We brought the, we took a trillion rands worth of equipment from the Russians. That's how much we took back from each base we took from them. We were always outnumbered. That Operation Protea, we only heard the night before, before we went in with them. We were 2,000 troops, a fighting group of 2,000 troops. There were 20,000 soldiers in the, in the city. And we still put them to block. You know what I mean? So your fathers were heroes. I want to just tell you that, and nobody knows that today. You know, we're not heroes today. There's no halls of fame for us. There's no, we were famous in our day. We could walk down the streets, people gave us free drinks. And, but this generation does not know what your fathers did uh, against mighty and incredible forces. I remember the Cuban general said to, I think it was Pat Buerta, I will bring 50,000 more troops. He said, that's fine, we'll send 3,000. No. And that's the kind of odds it was. You know, and we always won and always prevailed. So I'm just telling you that for your, for those of you who had fathers who were around about my age or older. Anyway, so um, the last operation we did was Daisy and um we trapped a huge battle group of, of uh, enemy soldiers and civilians were involved and gunships were involved and it was real it was really bad and i think ranger my friend never came back from that you know what i mean but after that operation we literally got on the choppers flew back to ndangwa and from ndangwa we went home and released into society <laughs> it's like what now what am i going to do now you know and after the excitement of the military and facing challenges of life or death, nothing could hold my attention and I drifted deeper and deeper into trouble and sin. I tried to rejoin the mercenary unit in 44 Parachute Battalion, but they were disbanded because they had tried to take the Seychelles or something. I don't know if you remember in the 80s. <laughs> they said, just no, sorry, we've got to close down now. We're going to go and come here. And I drifted, and at 23 years of age, I was arrested in 1984 for five armed robberies, one of them a bank robbery, the Norwood Barclays Bank. I actually just wanted to go to the Foreign Legion. I didn't have any money. I kid you not. But anyway, you know, that's what I landed up doing, you know. Um, I never got to the Foreign Legion. So I was sentenced to 30 years imprisonment, for the five armed robberies, six years per charge, and they made 15 years concurrent with 15. Yes. By then, I'd estranged everyone I knew and stood alone in prison. All the years uh, that I'd been out, we'd 
lived wild lives and, and car accidents. And I've got this on my face, 160 Ks into a concrete ditch. You know, they cut us out the car with the jaws of life, drunk as lords, you know, with one of my fellow soldiers in those days. We just didn't fit into society, you know, and we couldn't work, stay long at jobs. We, you know, we wanted to go back to the war and we, it just was a mess, you know. So when I landed up in prison, nobody actually knew I was in prison at all. I, my family wasn't even talking to me. I think I crashed the Oaks bike and I'd been in so many car accidents that it was absolutely ridiculous, you know. Um, and they, nobody was talking to me and I was alone in Yobra. And when I, when I went to prison, um, I was alone completely. I was tired of life at 23. I stood chained like a wild dog in that court alone, cut off and suffering the consequences of life's choices. And I just didn't care, actually. I'd done everything in my life I wanted to do. I'd seen every sin, everything that I could have wanted to do, I'd done and I'd found life wanting. You know, I didn't, you know, even today I don't have a bucket list, but I definitely didn't have one then. You know, something I still wanted to do in my life because I felt I'd done it all. You know what I mean? And I was tired and, and, uh, of life already. So I've fallen into very grievous sin and, and, and standing there, I just chained to the other guys who were involved with me. Uh, you know, I just heard my sentence and I just thought, well, there's it, you know. And it's a very predictable chain of events for such a person that grew up like that. Prison is full of such men. A year and a half later, while in prison, a maximum classification prison, Sondavata prison in Pretoria, I was assigned to a workbench where there was a Christian, Billy Rotenbach. Now, you were assigned to different prisons. I went to first do the hanging, they used to hang guys nowadays. So, you used, if you got a capital offence, a capital offence is an offence that you could be hanged for. Okay, so all hanging offences, um, and they were still hanging people in our day when I was in Pretoria Central, we used to hear them singing in the early hours of the morning, you know what I mean? And then the trapdoor would go, you know? So I had a capital offence, which was, armed robbery was a capital offence. So I had to be sent to a maximum classification prison. And in the old days, because uh, it was still black and white prisons, the only maximum classification prison in the country for whites was in Sonavata, in Cullen and in Pretoria. So I was assigned there in the end, you know, I landed up there. And I want to tell you something, I've been in prison, I mean, I've been in war, I'm a veteran now, a young veteran, and that prison shocks you still to the core. You know, there are guys doing back-to-back -back life sentences there, you know what I mean? And the, the horrors of how tattooed head to toe, you know, you haven't seen creatures like this in your life before. Anyway, I was, I went, I was put in solitary confinement for six months, which is actually a, a blessing because you know, you don't want to go to the main prison as a newbie. And um, I was put there and because of the length of my sentence and then I'm considered a security risk. And I was put in that where people are being, are, are in this solitary confinement for protection of their lives in the prison. And there are hits going on in there, in, this, in the single cells. You can't believe it. I mean, it's just like a madhouse. I thought, where am I in the maddest house in the world? Anyway, so when I got out of the single cells, um, I, was, uh, um, I was put into a workplace and I met this Christian, the one Christian in the prison, habitual criminal, Billy Rotenbach. 
Now, in the old days, the, the habitual criminals used to get seven years to indeterminate. That means they had to do minimum of seven, and the government could keep them till the end of their days if they wanted to, if they didn't see any change in the law. And Billy was a Christian. There were a thousand men in this prison. You know what I mean? A thousand. It even had a psychopath section for serial killers and all that in, in Sonavata. And um, Billy was at my workbench and he started to talk to me about God, but I mean, I didn't want to know anything. But he gave me a book to read called There's a New World Coming by Hal Lindsay. And this book was about the book of Revelations. Now, I got involved in the occult as well. There was a, a woman that I didn't even know that started visiting me in prison whose ex-husband was a wizard. You know, and I was very into the occult and, and studying it and uh, uh, astral projection and all this kind of stuff. You know, so I was quite involved in all this stuff. Anyway, so I read this book, uh, New World Coming In, uh, on the book, and it took the book of Revelations um, verse by verse and spoke about it and explained it. And I mean, I was quite shocked, you know what I mean? Because I'd never heard anything like this, you know. I was, uh, I, I read it, you know, and I, I couldn't put it down once I started reading it. You know, and I found out that Christ was the Lord of the spiritual realm, which was quite interesting to me because in the astral planes you do rituals of the banishing pentagrams, which call on the archangel Michael and all these angels, Gabriel, and that's what these oaks are calling on. I'm sure it's not that who's coming to see them, but, you know, they think it is, you know. So it was quite a mind-blowing thing for me to read all this in Revelations. But, you know, I started to believe that Christ was who he said he was. You know, I, I started to hang on a moment, you know, here is a guy I can follow. You know, he never sinned. You know what I mean? Look, he died for the human race. You know, and it, it started to ring a bell and I got to Revelations 5.1 and it said, and I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside on the back, sealed with seven seals. And then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose the seals? Now for me, I had found no one with in my entire life. I'd seen women backbiting the men, the men backbiting, sleeping around behind the woman's back. You know what I mean? I never saw a happy couple in my life. You know what I mean? I was against marriage, everything, you know? I'd had a, a, a girlfriend, you know, in the, in, you know, when I was a young man in, in uh, when I was uh, in teen center, you know, and she left me when I was in the army, you know. So I was like totally put off, you know, when we were fighting in a, we were doing a, a, a hunter seeker operation with the mercenaries in Southern Angola. And uh, the planes flew as the choppers came at night. They were too scared to come in the day. They brought us rations at night, deep in Angola, you know. Now we being, we we hunting these groups day in and day, but they also hunting us. And uh, the choppers came in, they gave us uh, letters, and I opened my letter, there was a dear John, you know? And in the 19 with a bullet, they laugh at me very badly about it, you know what I mean? They're, they're all canning themselves. And I've got a dear John here in this place of, uh, you know, where we actually just wondering if we're going to make it through the next day, you know? Anyway, so that really put me off all relationships after that, you know, and I wasn't keen. So I was a guy who found no one worthy. So when I read the scripture, I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll 
and to loose its seals. And the writer said that the angels of God were sent to look on the earth, under the earth, that is the people that were alive or those that were in the place of the dead, all the people of the human race were put to the test in the past and future, and those that are dead were all put to the test. Is there anybody worthy to open the seals? The angels looked at Confucius and he wasn't worthy. They looked at Buddha and he was not found worthy. They looked at Muhammad and he was not found worthy. And the angels found nobody worthy. Gandhi, no one. They came back to the Lord and said, no one. There's no one worthy to open these seals. No religious man was found worthy by God. And I knew that in my heart straight away. I knew it was true. Because no religious person I'd ever seen in my life was worthy. There was always darkness and things they were up to. You know what I mean? And I believe I knew that that was absolutely true. It just rang in my heart, you know. Revelations 5.3 And no one in heaven or the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. And when I read that, it hit me in my heart because I, I believed it. It's what I've been saying my whole life. I knew that humans were that knew, was not worthy. I knew that I was not worthy. I knew in my heart that no so-called holy man was worthy. i just seen too much evil in my life. You know, I'd seen the reality of the human race in all its starkness. And I'd found it wanting. You know, I, I loved animals more than I loved humans. I had no time for the human race. I would have been a great assassin. You know, somebody given me that job before I met Christ. Because I didn't have a problem with human beings. I didn't have any time for that. So everybody let me down and I had let everybody down. Myself. And then Revelations 5, 4, it says, so I, the apostle said, so I wept much, because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. So they said the apostle broke down at this point and he wept that his heart was breaking. Now, I connected with that straight away because it was true. I knew it was true. He was weeping for the brokenness of man, for our terrible wickednesses, for our shame, for our brutality, for our violence against one another. And for all the sins that we could do, we did as a human race. When I read this too, I was convicted to my heart. You know what I mean? And I must have had a little weep. I'm not a guy that weeps much, but I had a little, I knew I had a connection. I believed God's word. I believed Jesus was who he said he was and that he was worthy, you know? And uh, I felt it very deeply, you know? I, as I said, I wasn't a very emotional guy. God never came to me with love. He came to me with truth. Because love I would have not trusted. You know, if you told me God loves you, you can't just go to some oaks and tell them God loves you, you know? I don't understand that. You know what I mean? And, it's, and men don't understand how other men can love other men. It's, they'll say, you know what? Jesus loves me. I'm, not, I'm a man. Don't come talk tell another man loves me. They don't understand that. Can't talk to men like that. You know what I mean? They don't understand. They can understand God and who he is and hell and that there's a consequence to what we're doing in our lives. They understand that. Revelations 5, 5, but one of the elders said to me, do not weep, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. You know, in my heart, I found somebody worthy 
I didn't think I even knew the Lion of Judah was. But the writer said it was Jesus Christ, and I, and I believed. I knew that just that five chapters that I'd read in Revelations, that Christ was worthy, someone to be followed, that I could follow, and that he was the Son of God. And I knew if I bowed my knee, he'd accept me. You know, if I gave my life to him, I didn't even know about repentance. I wasn't actually, quite frankly, for, sorry for all the sins that I'd committed. But I believed in Christ. I believed in him, that he was who he said he was. And I could give my life to him. I want to tell you, we often put a stumbling block in the, in the face of those in the street and telling them to repent. Because they don't know how to repent yet. And they don't want to repent of their sins. But they can believe in Christ. That he's the one and they can give their lives to Christ. Who then teaches us how to repent. You know, it took me a year to learn to repent, by the way. But I got born again in putting, believing Christ and giving my life to Christ. Surrendering my life to him. And I asked him there in that bungalow, there were, the bungalows were, you know, 30 men, uh, those ones, double banks, double bunks. All the men in Sonavata prison are nine years and up. All of them are capital offenders. Murder, rape, serial killers, everything you could be hanged for, kidnapping, those are the guys there. There's no Mickey Mouse guys in that prison. You know what I mean? So... Uh, you, you, and with 30 men at night, the blankets, they wrap blankets around the beds and up to the ceilings, make little hockeys to sleep in at night. You know what I mean? But it was there that I gave my life to Christ, on that top bed. I just had my face in the pillar and I surrendered my life to Christ. Even if you're in the darkest place, Christ can find you. You know, Psalm 139 verse 8 says, If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. That even in that place, you know, with all those savages, Christ was still there. And I didn't understand love and Christ reached me with truth, the truth of God's word. I surrendered my life because I didn't have much to surrender, actually. I didn't own anything. I didn't have anything. I just had problems. <laughs> you know what I mean? My life was a mess. And I didn't know what I was going to do. It's the beginning of my prison sentence. I'm there for the rest of my life as far as I knew. You know what I mean? So what did I have to offer Christ? Just my brokenness. And he took it. And gave me his wholeness. The divine exchange. You know, our brokenness for his wholeness. I surrendered my life unconditionally. I gave all my problems to him. I just said, have my life, you know. And uh, I'll follow you, you know, wherever that takes me. So, I don't know what happened that night, but I know as I slept, I slept for the first time in my life that I can remember in peace. I, in the years of war and that, I only dreamt of war. If I dreamt at all, I dreamt of war. That's all. My life was just full of it. If the years before were always bad dreams, I never had good dreams. And that night was the first night of my life that I actually woke up the next morning and I was in peace. I felt at peace. Something had happened, you know, you know, something incredible. And I remember the night and what had happened. I'm going like, well, what do you do now? You know, sit up in the bed and I don't feel angry. I haven't had a, I don't, I haven't had a bad dream. I've, I've had the most incredible night. So I think the reformers are right when they're saying we don't find Christ. He finds us because he found me when I wasn't looking for him, when I didn't know where to go. 
I didn't, I didn't, wasn't looking for a reason to, a, a, a religion to, to rest on, you know what I mean? I was just lost, you know, and Christ found us for me and many other guys. Romans 5, 8, but God commends his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we hated him, he already died for us. While we were his enemies, he already thought of us and loved us. And the Bible says in, in Luke 15, verse 10, Likewise I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So having learned about spiritual things, I'm sure I know what happened that night in that dark prison. A chariot arrived at that gate. You know, the Lord arrived. And every demon in hell is hissing at him, saying, what do you want here? Jesus walked through the gates. Every uh, uh, demon uh, showing their teeth at him. And how do we know this? From John Bunyan's book, Visions of Heaven and Hell. Because when Jesus walked into hell with John Bunyan to show him what hell looked like, the demons did exactly that. They, they were running around. They went to get Lucifer himself, who came to him and said, what does the thunderer want in my domain? Call Jesus the thunderer. That's so cool. He says, what does the thunderer want in my domain? And then Jesus just ignored him and walked in anyway. So I could see him coming, the Lord saying, I've got an appointment tonight, stand aside. Romans 8.38, for I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing could stop Christ coming to, to fetch me spiritually and save me spiritually. I believe the Lord came to my bungalow for that appointment. And I know Christ held me in his arms that night as I dreamt no evil. And he'll also meet you for your appointment with the God in heaven. You know, I don't tell many people this and I haven't written about anything, but all of my life I formulated in my mind a a secret place that I used to go sleep at night and all the dangers that I went through from families to, to military. And in my mind, I'd made up this like safe car that I could go and sleep in that was bulletproof and could fly and could go under the waters. You know what I mean? It's, a psychiatrist had great fun with that. You know what I mean? You know that if, before I went to sleep, I used to go in there and then I'd be safe in there and then I'd be able to sleep. You know, when I tried that the next night, it was taken from me like that instantly. Gone. God just took it. I'm your safe place. Never was I able to return to that thing that I'd had in my imagination. You know what I mean? Ever again in my life. I felt it actually physically being taken away from me. Not there anymore. I'm your safe place. So the prison I was in was brutal. Um, you know, a capital offenders. There's no kindness, peace, or joy. Any form of kindness is looked at as a weakness. And the prison looked like Sodom and Gomorrah times two when I got there first. The oaks walking around in dresses, I kid you not. And the warders are lying at, you know. It's like, what, where am I, you know? What kind of place is this? It was the most wicked place I'd ever seen. And violence rules the prison. So the next day, after trusting, this was about a year and a half into my sentence that I got saved, that I gave my life to Christ. But the next day, I was in the main prison now. And the next day, after trusting in Jesus Christ, I went to the workshop and told my friend Billy, 
I said to him, hey, Billy, you know, I gave my life to the Lord last night. But don't go tell anybody now, eh? Don't go put me in the eyes now, you know? So Billy went and told everybody. <laughs> it was terrible. I was confronted by people saying, hey, what's this with you? You become a Christian. You know, and I had to say I am. And I was embarrassing. One of the hardest things for me to say in prison that you are not in control of your own life. They see it as a weakness now that you need God in your life. You know what I mean? And I had to say to person after person, yes, I've become a Christian. Yes, I put, and my ears were going red and my face was going red. And I felt so embarrassed. You know what I mean? Admitting that Jesus Christ was Lord of my life. You know, it was one of the hardest things we had to do. But the Bible says in Romans 10 verse 9 that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and you believe in your heart God raised from the dead, you'll be saved. I have to confess with my mouth. I had to make that confession that Jesus is Lord of my life, that I'm a Christian, that I'm following Christ. It's the hardest thing I ever had to do that I can remember. So it's important that we confess with our mouth so that angels and demons can hear we've changed sides and now we belong to Christ. They can't read our minds, they're not God, but they can hear what we say. It's no time and space in the spiritual realm. So if we speak to a guy, a devil, in somebody in Australia, and we just say the guy's name, Joseph, we rebuke that devil in you in Jesus' name, that devil's ears go up straight away. There's no time and space. So when we make that stand and we confess with our mouth, everybody, every demonic uh, thing that ever knew us hears that Jesus Christ is Lord of you now. It's very important. You know, I had this huge giant of a guy who was a friend of mine in there, you know, um, uh, built, you know, incredibly well, strong guy, you know, and he always used to hang around with me, you know, and I think the Lord put him there as my watchman, you know, keep a watch over me. Nobody wanted to come near me with this giant next to me. You know? But one day I said to him, you know, uh, Grant, you've never given your life to Christ. You now, why did you, every day I talk about God, you've never given your life to Christ. He said, yeah, yeah, I tried, you know, I tried a, a little while back. I said, you did, you never told me. He said, yeah, I got next to my bed and I, I gave my life to Christ and then nothing happened, so I left it. I said, but you didn't confess with your mouth. That's what you've got to do. That's part of the contract. You can't just believe in your heart God raised Jesus from the dead. Then the contract's not fulfilled. You've got to confess with your mouth and believe. You know, and that was his problem. He never ever made a confession. He was too—he didn't want to do that. You know. Romans ten ten says, "With the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation." I didn't have an easy walk with God. You know, um, to be quite honest, you know, I was a savage. You know, I had no kindness, love, joy, and peace in me whatsoever. All I did was believe in Christ. Was who He said He was. And the only thing that changed in me was the swearing was gone. Because I was, I swore so badly. When I had these accidents, the nurses smacked my face because of the filth pouring out my mouth at them. That they actually smacked me in the, in the, they told me afterwards, you know, that what's in your heart comes out your mouth, you know, under anesthetic and that, you know. So, you know, but when I got saved, that I realized Billy said to me, hey, you haven't sworn. Like a day later, I haven't heard you swear. I said, gee, that's weird. I haven't sworn. It was gone. It was just taken from me. But the rest I really struggled with as a Christian. So there were only two of us in a thousand men that were really Christians in that, in that place. 
And there were many times I wanted to give up. But God helped me. I tried witnessing but wasn't very successful. As I start to talk to someone, they lose the argument and put the Bible down, then we hit each other stuck it. <laughs> Never want anybody to Christ. One of the bad gang leaders, Lucky Constantinus, had 18 years murder and rape. He pulls me out the queue one day, he says, you come here. He says to me, listen, you're supposed to be a Christian. You build a fence one day and you break it down the next day. That's not supposed to be like that. He's telling me, and he's a blooming drug lord, you know. He's telling me how to be a Christian, because yeah, I had no clue. You know, so, you know, I had to, uh, I wasn't getting anywhere. We led him to Christ many years later on, by the way. But I'm not sure of your theology, but I was desperate for more of God. I knew there had to be more. You know, and one thing in prison that's available is Christian books. All families send their people Christian books, which they then give to me. You know what I mean? So I've got this incredible library. I bought a Matthew Henry commentary for like two cartons of cigarettes or something, you know? And I mean, somebody said, hey, my parents sent me this book, you want it? So I had this incredible library being built there, you know? And, uh, and I read about being baptized in the Holy Spirit. I'd been given my life to Christ. I think it took about a year before I learned to repent. There was something wrong with my Christian. I wasn't sure what it was. But every time I read that chick tracklet, this was your life, spoke about repentance and cut me to the heart. And I thought, why am I being cut to the heart? I'm a Christian. And then I realized that I hadn't repented. I actually, quite frankly, wasn't sorry about anything I'd done in my life. You know what I mean? So I had to have a session with God, a confession session with God, and wrote my sins down and talked to God. And then I started to see the impact and the lives that I had destroyed through my life were immense. I just left a broken trail of human beings behind me, you know. And when I repented, finally, and I asked God for forgiveness so that my Christianity changed. It went forward uh, much better. But I still had no power to win souls. So I read about being baptized in the Holy Spirit, you know, that it, it could be a secondary thing in your Christian walk. I know some people feel that it's, you get it at salvation. That's what you believe. But that's what happened with me. I said, God, I'm not baptized in the Holy Spirit, you know. Um, you know, I don't have power to win souls. I'm not very good at talking to people at all. In fact, most people avoided me. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, and, um, I, I, you know, I really wanted to have this baptism in the Holy Spirit. So one day I just stood in the shower and I said, God, I'm trusting you for it because what if I ask you're going to give it to me, you know, you're not going to give me a stone if I ask for a fish. I'm asking for the baptism of the Holy Spirit now in my life, and I'm taking it by faith in Jesus' name. You know, and I spoke whatever I could came out of my head in that shower. And I walked as if I had it, nothing changed. I walked out there and I just said, I'm being baptized in the Holy Spirit now. I'm going to start winning people to Christ. I'm going to start talking to people about the Lord. And nothing happened for about three days. And then I was in the workshop and I was talking to three Mayfair boys. And um, I suddenly felt weird. I was talking, I felt out of my belly flowing rivers of living water. I felt water flowing out of my belly while I'm talking to them. And they are stunned and I'm stunned. I'm saying things I don't even know what I'm saying here, but are, are affecting these guys. None of them are arguing with me anymore. They're just standing looking at me and I feel this incredible river flowing through me while I'm talking to them. You know, it was hectic and the bell rang for us to go and to be searched before we went to the main prison. 
And I walked away, and they were still left standing there in the same spots, like not moving. I thought, what the heck happened to me now? And since then, the witnessing changed. You know, dunamis power. You shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. It's the word dunamis, where we get that word power from. Dynamite power. And then we started to win guys to Christ in that prison, you know, and we started to turn oaks around. And over the years, we defeated by the power of Jesus all the cults in the prison that there were and won many, many men to Christ. We had a big movement in there at, at, at our highest point, you know, of souls being won to Christ from every bungalow being homosexual. There were like only three in the end. Not everybody else was Christians, but we pushed the darkness back. You know, and uh, it was uh, an incredible uh, time of witnessing and, and winning people to the Lord. But as the years dragged on um, towards seven years, you know, uh, just done under seven years, I was pushing time hard. And a, a Christian welfare worker called my sister Melanie in Cape Town, who was a Christian in an Anglican church, at a local Anglican church. And she'd said to her, because I'd stopped writing, you know, the years were hard, you know. I, there had been a break. I'd been declassified from a maximum prisoner to a medium prisoner. And then there was a new thing in the prison that uh, if you're a medium prisoner, you could be sent to a prison closer to your home. So I was sent in an enclosed van all the way to Cape Town with a whole bunch of savages from Woodstock. <laughs> so the writer saw this is the best deal to get rid of the worst prisoners, send them to Baltimore. These are all lifers in that, but they finished all like a third of their time. You know, and they unleashed us onto Polesmore here. It was never so terrified in all their lives. Anyway, we landed up getting sent back, you know, back to Sondervata. They said, we don't want you here, get back, you know. And when I got back, the church was gone, you know, and um, uh, it was like gone completely, you know. Uh, I think it was one believer left in it. And, um, you know, so it was going really hard in those days. And I think I stopped writing not so much anymore and that, you know, I was just trying to get through my years there. And uh, I'm pushing it stone cold sober, you know what I mean? They're not taking drugs like the other guys, trusting the Lord every single day of my life, you know what I mean? And you're in a place of great violence and savagery. Anyway, so she said to you, you need to pray for your brother. I don't think he's doing very well, you know. Um, I wasn't falling in the world. I hadn't gone back into drugs. I, hadn't, I was just quiet, you know, I wasn't writing home much anymore. So she fasted for three days. I don't think she'd ever fasted in her life before, you know, and somebody had told her to do that, so she fasted for three days, and on the third day she went to a prayer group here in Cape Town, an Anglican prayer group, you know, they're not much into the gifts of the Spirit type of thing, but this woman said to her, I've got a word from you, from God for your brother in prison. And she read Isaiah 45 verse 1, which, uh, 2 verse 3. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him. I will loose the loins of kings and open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. The prison sign was two clover leaves. You know what I mean? Which is the weirdest thing. I mean, this chick didn't even know I was in prison. I will go before you, make the crooked places straight, I will break in pieces the gates of brass, and cut in sunder the bars of iron. Yes. This is the word she's giving to my sister, you know? And I'll give you the treasures of darkness and the hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, which call thee by thy name and the God of Israel. So the welfare worker phones me in the prison because we're a high security prison. You can't just go to the front and that, you know. The last time 
the guys did. They took the welfare workers hostage. Anyway, so she's talking to me through the intercom. She's telling me, I, I want to tell you what just happened with your sister in, in Cape Town. So I said, yeah, no, that's cool. But I know every word must be confirmed in the mouth of two or three witnesses. You know, you know I'm not, I don't just take anything anybody says to me. You know? So I'm like, wow, that is crazy. Though. That is really crazy you know, to get a word like, but how am I going to get out? I hadn't finished half of my 15 years yet. And all armed robbers, you did uh, at least 12 of the 15. You never get parole. They, they never gave you parole or anything like that, you know. So how am I going to get out? Missed at least one or two amnesties. Capital offenders don't get amnesties in prison in those days. Hanging offences don't get any amnesties. You, other prisons do, not you. So I missed a couple of those. So I knew I wasn't getting that. I couldn't be paroled. So I'm like, okay, thank you very much. And I left it. About a week later, she phones me again through the, and the intercom says, listen, man, you're not going to believe this, she said to me. A Pretoria prayer group sent me a message for Anthony in Sondervata prison. Yeah. And they quoted Zechariah 9-11 in Afrikaans. That's what it says. Never seen it because I read English. And it says, as for you, by the blood of your covenant, I've sent forth your prisoners out of the pit where is in no water. You know, and then I knew I was going on. Two witnesses, independent of each other, didn't even know each other. They'd seen me, but I didn't know how. I said to the guys, hey, I'm going home soon. They said, don't talk nonsense, you're going home in a box, you know. Don't talk nonsense, you're going home, you know. <laughs> a couple of days later, you know, we're watching, now we had TVs in the bungalow. In the early years, we didn't. We're watching TV and the news comes on and the prison bars come on and they announce an amnesty. Nobody knows about it. The prison doesn't know about it. Nobody knows about it. Amnesties are planned like six months ahead. The prison bars come up and says, all prisoners that have finished a third of their time may leave, may be released. So we're like, huh? What? Okay, what are the areas that are not allowed? So we're listening and there's no areas coming. We're like, look at one another. Like, what was that about? They must have made a mistake, you know? Mm -hmm. So we go ask the next morning. We say, hey, we're supposed to be going home now. They say to us, no one's going home. We do not know where this comes from. This is, none of us have been told this. We don't know where, where this announcement came from. So no one goes home till the government actually tells us that you can. I mean, it was just a completely out of the blue, you know. God answered uh, my sister's prayer. I want to tell you that. And... The next, and then later on in the day, it came through and I started getting released. Now, I know I should be released, but no one's calling my name. So the next day, I, I say I refuse to go to work, you know, now you're going to get put in bomb and chains. They weld chains on you and put you in solitary confinement. But I said, listen, let me talk to this welfare worker through the intercom, you know, and let me just talk to her there. Once on your two slates and batten squad, no, no. Anyway, they let me talk to her and I said, listen, man. Mrs. Wellman was her name. Go check. I, don't, I think they've missed my file. So she says, now go look. And she got in the head. They'd thrown my file aside, you know, because they, they didn't understand the way that the sentence had been set out. And she phoned me and she said, yes, you do get, and they'll be calling you tomorrow. And I mean, you know, it was an incredible thing, you know. The next day they called me, they said, listen, yeah, have you got people to go to? Phone them now. You know, I mean, it's such a shock to the system, man. You know what I mean? That you're going to be released so quickly out of nowhere. You know, you're not expecting it at all. 
And I, I, they managed to get hold of my sister who was at work on the Thursday at lunchtime. You know, she'd stayed late and the phone rang, she picked it up and then her and her husband left immediately for Pretoria and drove through the night and waited outside the prison for me Friday morning. You know, where I walked out completely free. It was unconditional. No parole, no nothing, no SWAT team kicking in my door every time there's an armed robbery in the area that looks like me. You know what I mean? No being picked off the street by a SWAT team. You know, if they just think you're involved in a, they just drive, you just snatch you and your family doesn't even know where you've gone. You know, in those days they could sort of do that, you know. So I was completely released, you know, and uh, it was the most incredible thing. I was saying, God set me free. I've been serving the Lord Jesus Christ for 36 years now from, you know, from the time I got saved in prison. And most of the time in the front lines of the, of the battle, even in prison, I was in the church. I was the elder of that church for, for many years, you know, uh, the older Christian. And, um, you know, I'd been in the front lines. And even when I came out, I've always been involved somehow in the work of God. I do it because I love Christ more than anything in my life. You know, I, I'm a soldier for Christ. You know, I gave my heart to him, never took it back, never went back to the world. I might have grown a bit cold along my walk, but I've never gone back to the world and to the things of darkness. And I want to encourage you today to forsake the world and give your life and your dreams to Jesus. We've got to get rid of this wishy-washy Christianity that we're seeing nowadays. Amen. I want to tell you, it's actually shocking, you know. We're teaching people to live for Christ and not to die for him. You know, and it's, and it's wrong. You know, give your life and your dreams. Let him lead you into adventures you can only dream about. I've seen, I've been across the East and Sri Lanka, India, underground church and Muscat in Oman, never paid a cent. You know what I mean? Uh, Philippines, you know, preaching the gospel in the darkest places of the world. You know, I never paid a cent and cost me one cent, you know. And so I've been on adventures you can only dream about. You know, we to climb up on Elijah's altar and allow the fire of God to consume us. If you want to do something for God, you can't be these half-baked Christians. It's shocking, man, what we're seeing now, you know. These uh, wishy-washy little Christians that, uh, make, that are nothing. People don't even want to become Christians because they look at you. Not you personally, but at, at those kind of people, you know. <laughs> so allow the fire of God to consume you. Born again believers on fire for God and His kingdom. Let the world see that now for a change. 20 years ago, I used to see a lot of strong Christians. I don't see that anymore. You know, I don't see that anymore. I, it, there were a lot. They were quite annoying, actually, because all they ever spoke about was Christ. You couldn't talk to them about the rugby. You couldn't talk to them about it because they don't actually want to talk about that. I used to have a lot of friends like that. Hardcore Christians, you know, serving God day and night and uh, on outreaches on their own and doing things for God. I never see that anymore. We can barely get the Christians to come to church. You know what I mean? Even just to attend a service on a Sunday is like, wow, bro. You know? We, we've, got, we've got to change something. I wasted my life until I was 25 years old and I gave my life to Christ at 25. Went to prison at 23. I spent most of my 20s in prison. What if I listened to God calling me in matric in that boy's home? How different would my life have been? You know what I mean? You know, and uh, I want to encourage young people and old people, you know, to give your life. Don't just be a believer. The devil's a believer. He's not going to heaven. The devil believes in Christ. 
That's, that's not a Christian. A Christian is someone who's sold out to Christ, follows Christ. You know, every year you're changing. I'm not talking about church or cell groups. I'm talking about giving your life, laying down your life on that altar. You know, allow the fire of God to burn up all the junk. But if you want to know God, you must force first draw near to Him, and then He'll draw near to you. You've got to take the first step. You've got to take the time and effort to draw near to God. And then you'll begin to know God and begin to love Him. Mm-hmm. I took the first steps in a prison bungalow, where we were locked up every night from 5 p.m. at night to 5 a.m. in the morning. They took the keys out of the prison. They couldn't even get to you. If you're in trouble, no one can help you. It takes hours to go get those keys. You know what I mean? I'm not sure the logic behind it, but uh, I suppose they think someone's going to break in and steal the key and open the, the prisons at uh, their cells. You know? So we were alone at nights in those bungalows, utterly alone with some of the worst killers you can imagine. We used to close our bed with bank blankets so each bed was private from one bed to the next. But I learned to draw near to God there, even though I was in a bungalow of 30 men. Five radios, all on a different radio station. I've got myself some earmuffs and some earplugs and put the earplugs in and the earmuffs on. That's how I used to walk around. And that's how I slept at night. Because you can't sleep in that place. You know what I mean? It's just madness. Or we try and creep up and switch the radio off while the guy's sleeping, you know? That's terrible. Eh? But I learned to find Christ there, you know, and uh, by reading my Bible, by spending time in prayer. And I never just, the deep things about you've got to push in, push in, push in, and then you break through. That the high things of God don't come easy. You know, you had your Old Testament temple and you had the outer court, inner courts, and holy of holies. I was speaking to a group about it last night. Many Christians get to the outer court of God's uh, temple. Some even get to the inner court. The few that push through through the broken curtain into the holy of holies, where the presence of God is, where there's the power of God, where you changed, when you transformed, when you know what it's like to actually feel the presence of God in your life. We hang around second best, third best, outside all the days of our life. We saved, but we have no effect really on this earth. We make no difference, change no lives, defeat no devils, because we're happy with second best. We must push in, we must grow up, push into the things of God. So I often wish for a long time I used to think about it and, and wish that I changed my life a lot earlier on. And some of you can, you know. You've got that opportunity. You, you will start a, a life of, you can't even imagine what God will do with a young person that sits, gives their life to Christ now. This world is gone. Soldiers in Christ, few and far between. God will cross a million men to reach one man or woman, one man, that puts up their hand and says, I'll go. Get ready or be a soldier for Christ. Allow God to give you his armor and sword and shield. There was a movie, Men in Black. The Men in Black were the defenders of the universe against aliens. But the real truth is that we are the men of black. We are the defenders of the world. We're the only ones with the supernatural armor, swords and shields to defeat every dark demon and the unseen forces of this world. Who can do that but us? We can drive the enemy from the battlefields from our towns, from people's lives, because God gave us supernatural armor, swords, shields. We're warriors for God in this world. 
But most take off their helmets, throw it in the corner, breastplates lying there. They lie so much the belt fell off and the rest of the armor fell off with it. And we are okay with that. And the world's dying around us. What's it? 150 souls slip into eternity every second. And we're sleeping, playing our stupid games all day on our TVs. And the world's going to hell in a handbasket around us. And God gave us the armor and the weapons to make a difference on this earth. I wonder if we'll even be saved one day when we stand before God and the Lord says, who did you bring with you? Where are my most precious jewels, the human race? Where are they? No, I didn't bring anybody with me, Lord. That's going to be terrible. I don't think I want to be like that on that day. So be full of God's word and faith and purpose and let your shield and be mighty and your sword sharp and effective in this world. Be, as, be those knights of Christ. Let's be knights for Christ. We've got one life. Let's live it. Do as much damage as we can to the enemy's kingdom. If we fall, we fall. And we fall in with honor. What do we care? We know where we go. We're going to be with Jesus. So what do we care? We count our lives as nothing. For the Lord. I heard a story a while ago in a Christian radio station. My church guys will know this. I use this. And... And I heard it. It's not something I read. I actually heard this story, this top gun pilot telling the story. You know what I mean? And he said, you know, he was on duty at a military base in the mountains and, a, and a, on the, with the latest fighter planes, Christian guy. You know, and he said a, a, a pilot in a Cessna plane was freaking out up in the mountains because the mist had come in and he'd lost all his instruments and he couldn't see the airport. And he was terrified and crying over the, over the radio and saying, please help me. So they said to this Top Gun pilot, listen, just go help this guy in your F-14 or whatever he had there, you know. He jumped in it, throttled up, took off, found this guy on his radar quickly, pulled up next to him in the, in the mist, waved him, said, establish radio contact, said to him, listen, I'm going to go in front of you and then follow my lights and I'll take you down to the airport, you know. And he did that. He took him all the way down and he landed safely. And the guy came running and he was crying and he hugged him. He said, you saved my life. You know, thank you so much. And the Top Gun pilot said, we should be like that fighter plane and that fighter. We should be the state-of-the-art fighter plane that God can deploy anywhere against any enemy at any time. And we will prevail and we will win the lost and bring them home safely. Because we are fully equipped to deal with anything that the enemy has got in his Awesome. Are you a Christian like that? Can God deploy you into any situation? Some Christians said to me, my, my place is full of Muslims. I'm the only Christian. Well, we'd say, well, praise God for that. We're going to take him down. We're going to turn this thing around. There's going to be lots of Christians here soon. You see, we are the state-of-the-art fighter planes. We've got the armor, the swords, the shields, the wisdom of God, the power of the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead will smash the enemy. When we go and we, we reach people that are lost in, in our area in Parklands and that, you know, we go into their homes and they're frightened of demons and things, we just put our shields over them, stick our swords in the stinking thing's mouth and say, you get out in Jesus' name. <laughs> we drive them out there. Because we care. The enemy should be worried when he sees you come down the road. 
There was a track called The Demon's Nightmare. I don't know, a chick track years back, you know. And it had a picture of this Christian walking down the road whistling and every demon peeping around the corner at him saying, Oh no, we've got trouble coming. Are you trouble coming? Because you should be. You know, we, we should make a difference on this earth. So the Bible tells us we have a great cloud of witnesses watching to see what we will do with the power of God. The church and that's gone before us, the saints of the Old Testament, they did great things. David's mighty men ran through an army like Asterix and Obelix and got a pail of water and bashed their way out the army and came and gave it to David because he asked because they thought they could. The Philistines were like, check these three oaks running towards them like, what, what, what are these things going to do to us? You know, and they just, the scripture says in the list of David's mighty men, they just charge right through them like Asterix. <laughs> got to have water. The two held the others off. He filled the pail of water from the, the, the Bethlehem well. And then they hit their way back out again and came to David and said, here's the water. <laughs> you know what I mean? They didn't think that was a problem. You see David's men. Uh, others killed 300 of the enemy soldiers at once. I kid you not. One guy, you know, they watched the Matrix. He's like beating a, a hundred of whatever they call those things. But in the scriptures, real champions beat 300 men at one time with a sword one with a spear that's three companies of soldiers whacked them all in one battle and he, he was like one of the mighty men then so you read that list of mighty men it's like what one guy david and elysia are standing with the whole church and i say the church because it's the believers against the philistine army they're all standing there waiting for the Philistine army come, who's been trained in war since the age of nine. Here they come in their chariots and whatever towards them. The church runs away, the believers run away, but Elysia and David pull their swords out in the lentil field and say, come on, bring it on. And they break them. God used two men to break that entire Philistine army who turned and fled. It's a picture of today's church. You know, the enemy sets itself up against our churches and they run. But it's just God's looking for somebody to stand. Is it just anybody? Anybody will stand for me. You know, we, we, do, we leave the battlefields and we shouldn't do that. You know, God's looking. So why is it recorded? Why are David's men? I mean, you see how hectic they were. You can read that list of guys. It's like, jaw-dropping stuff you know what I mean what these guys were able to do through the power of God and if you, you listen to a sermon on you'll hear these were men that came to David that were in debt broken defeated men and David melded them into the greatest mighty men ever of the world that ever seen so God's looking for champions today this may be many of you hearing this message God chose you at this time to be on this planet, not 500 years ago. When he took your life, he said, you know what, I'm going to put you here, 2020. And I'm going to equip you and enable you to deal with the problems of 2020. Not 1800s, not 1600s. Now, you've been put in the last time, the greatest battle on earth. 
against the most dangerous enemy because he's come down to the earth with great wrath. You were chosen for God's army today. So extend God's kingdom. Be willing to lay down your life for Christ. This doesn't mean dying for Christ alone. It, it means giving up what you want to do for him. On a Saturday, you want to go to movies, you want to do something for us, go do something for the Lord, go do outreach, give up something. Start like that. Little things. Go to the worst block of flats you can find and go knock on their door. That's what we do. We say, where's the worst block we can go to in the Parklands, you know? And then we'll go there first. And then when we get there, they're drunk in the streets and fighting in the, in the parking lots. Then we say, we ask them, we say, where's the worst unit here that we can go to? They, they say, that one, they, that's the drug lords. <laughs> then we go there first, <laughs> knock at the door, say, hi, we're Christian church, you're coming to pray for people, can we come pray for you? You see these two eyes looking around the door at us. Say, no, don't worry, we're not going to do it, we're just going to pray for you. And they always open the door and <laughs> let us come in. And we pray for them. And some of them cry, some give their lives to the Lord, you don't know. God's just looking for Christians who's going to actually take the battle to the enemy. And stop hiding in our little castles and our little churches that we make. When I went to the Philippines, they're like that. I, I spoke so harshly to their leaders, they were like shocked. I said, you guys have made your little kingdoms and you live in your kingdoms and you never go outside and win anybody to Christ. The churches are full of women and children, no men. You know, and they were like, Hey, God talk to us like that as it is okay. <laughs> anyway, so you know, don't let's do something crazy for the Lord. You know? So you'll be surprised how lost and how scared people are at this time and how easy they are to win the Lord to the Lord. You'll be quite shocked at how easy they are. People are scared and they, they, they don't see a future in this country, in the world. We're standing on the brink of the third world war. But why do we care as Christians? We know it's coming is in the Bible. So, you know, what do we care? We know who holds the future. We're not scared of the future. Bring it on, war, peace, <laughs> whatever. We're still going to be devastating Christians, aren't we? If we must help the wounded, we'll help the wounded. If we must, we, you know, with this whole COVID thing, we rode into the battle. I read that about the early church in Rome. You know, during the plagues, the church went to the plague. They didn't run from it. You know, and they, they didn't really have great faith to stand against sicknesses and that. But it says they, just to reach one soul for Christ, they would sit holding the person's hand while they died and die next to them, but having led the person to Christ. You know, I love that, you know. The church went to the battlefront. You know, and, and that's how I think we should be. We shouldn't be scared of anything. God is with us. Who can be against us? So, take sword and shield, drive out demons in the house, stick your sword in the devil's face to get out. I think of the young Moravian missionaries who carved out their own gravestones, 19-year-olds. You know, they took their own gravestones and they went to Africa, to China, wherever they went. You know, they carved their own name of it and they left the date off. Because those 19-year-olds knew they weren't coming back. And your life expectancy in Africa was two years. You either died of malaria or some other horrible sickness or cannibals 
or, dis- or tribes killed you or something. But all of those youngsters knew they weren't coming back. And I love that. I, I understand that. They, they counted their lives as nothing for Christ. And John Wesley got converted on a ship. He'd been a Christian his whole life. He said he was truly converted when he saw these young Moravians going like that to the mission fields. You know, we're teaching people you must have pools and have wonderful things and have a wonderful life. And that's not what they were taught in the early years. Take the gospel to the ends of the earth. So, young 20-year-olds 20, 20 change the world. The Bible says the kingdom of heaven suffers violent and the violent take it by force. You reach up into the heavens and lay hold on the promises of God and bring them down to earth and then drive out hell before you. We've got to get God's word in us and, 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 and not be satisfied with defeat. It shouldn't even be in our language defeat. We will cast sickness out in Jesus' name. And if they fall, it's not because we didn't try. <laughs> Don't you want a church like that watching over you? If cancer comes your way, sickness comes your way, who doesn't accept defeat? We're going to pray for you. And we're going to do what fast. And we're going to do whatever we got to do. You understand what I'm saying? We're going to have that mindset for our people. I want to be in a church like that if that comes my way. You know what I mean? And that's what the Church of Christ should be. A warrior group. We're not afraid of the world. Somebody's child's lost. We pray and fast. Go fetch the child. Do whatever we need to do. Okay. I think I'm getting to the end now. What's my time? I can't see. Nearly half past it. Alright. So. Be soldiers for Christ. I think of the words of the great hymn by William Blake. I think the old Christians knew something about the fighting spiritual war. One of the verses says, bring me my bow of burning gold. Bring me my arrows of desire. Bring me my spear of clouds unfold. Bring me my chariot of fire. I will not cease from mental fight, nor shall my sword sleep in my hand, till we have built Jerusalem in England's green and pleasant land. You see, they had that victory eschatology. You know, bring me my sword and my chariot of fire. Because that's how we're going to live on earth. And I think the early believers knew about building Jerusalem here on earth. They called it, even some modern decorators called it building Jerusalem here on earth. Where we enforce God's word and his law against rebel, rebel demonic forces and drive them out. So that peace comes to our neighborhoods and our cities and our schools. And they call it like extending a, a suburb of heaven here on earth, enforcing God's word against demonic and dark forces. I think we need to get a mindset like that, driving out crime, fear and darkness and establishing the kingdom of God here on earth. I was officiating at the memorial for a deceased paratrooper and he was 10 years younger than I am and I wonder if his life was ready to meet Christ. And I, um, I never heard him say anything that he was a Christian or anything. I hope he was. He had no idea that his life would end so soon on a bike accident. And I often hear on the radio in the early morning, you know, when I was going to work and that, that there's been a terrible accident, you know, I'm, I'm going seven people dead. On the radio it says a taxi's been hit, seven people dead and so on. And I think those people got up early this morning, brushed their teeth, you know, put on their makeup, 
you know, got thinking, geez, they've got to go to work today. They didn't know that they were going to live for one hour. In one hour was the end of their life. None of them knew that the end was today. So none of us know how long we got here on this earth. Live your lives powerfully and sold out to Christ doing the work of God. We can replace the word England in that song for South Africa in the above, in the above here. So I leave you with these words. Do something important with your life. We have one chance to change the world around us. Sign up for God's kingdom. Learn to love God. Be a knight, a warrior for Christ, a conqueror on this earth. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Any questions or anything? Um, anybody want to ask a question? Yeah. Um, when you involved in ministry, and there's um, times when you go, when the ministry that you pin, it like it deflates, becomes smaller and smaller, and then um, what is, what would you say is the the verse or the thing that helped you to keep going through the time when you when you're struggling the most, and it's the least encouragement and the least amount of um, support. The least understanding today is spiritual warfare in the church. It, we, it was Christian 101 when I was a young Christian, you know. Uh, everybody knew about stuff like that. No, I've never seen churches so so ignorant of spiritual warfare. You're being hammered. It's just don't know it. You know, there's an enemy and devils and demons of all levels, principalities, powers, rulers of darkness, spiritual wickedness, now that want to see your church not succeed or your work not succeed. And they hit you from every, and you just don't see it as them. You know, the two attacks against a church, and I've, been, I've seen enough church splits in my life. The two attacks against that the demons send their scouts in first to destroy a church is through division and murmuring. That's how they come in first. They hit you like that and you start seeing it and the elders need to watch over the church. And the minute they see these murmuring and back, uh, going on in the church, the first wave, the scouts are in probing your defenses. You know what I mean? And they have one to destroy your church. If it's a work of God and you're being taken out, you, you're blindly being taken out. You know what I mean? The enemy's striking you and you're not using the right weapons against them. So, uh, you know, I've seen enough churches to be destroyed in my life, you know. Um, and that's the first wave of enemy attacks in a church. Murmuring and backbiting and stuff that starts that getting the Christians to start with trouble. Then they get into little groups. Then it starts to divide the church. You know what I mean? And, it, and then people leave. And then this one doesn't want to carry on anymore. And when you next look, you're sitting with not just about nobody. You know what I mean? Discouragement, depression is always demonic. I know people will think that, uh, that that's not true. It is always the one. They throw a cloak over you. They're well able to manipulate your hormones. In it, in it's it's, it's uh, occult 101 in the East to be able to manipulate your aura so that your body sickle well. That's they do like, that's just 101. You think devils can't do that to you? Manipulate your aura so you're depressed. Or you're feeling down or discouraged. 
And the whole time, because we're not looking at, we're not, we are ignorant of the devil's wiles of his ways. You know what I mean? And our churches are being destroyed. I was just talking to Dr. Peter Hammond about a church, you know, that they, the devil can't beat the church. He joins it, becomes your most upstanding member, but you think he's the greatest member, but he's not. He's from the hell itself, sent to destroy you. Let's change the prayer group from a Wednesday night to a Thursday night. And then let's change. Oh, we've also got prior, choir practice on the Thursday night. So listen, let's just leave the prayer group. Let people pray at home and we'll have the choir practice. There's your prayer group card. It was just taken out. You didn't even realize it. Little things like that. So it's a, that's what you've got to look at. Who's hammering you? You know what I mean? It's not God. And it's not God's will that you're being defeated. You're under attack. And you, you're being completely wiped out. One person after the other. And the church is blind to spiritual warfare. You know? It's actually shocking. You know what I mean? That uh, the modern day church knows nothing of it. You know, We can't see the enemy anymore. You know, And we invited him into our churches to be our best members. You know? We give our eldership positions to accountants. Because he's so clever. Devil, man. You just gave your eldership to a devil. I see it all the time. Not tried and tested men of God. You know what I mean? So we, we're losing our way and churches are losing that battle. You know? So that's where I'd look first. You go back and you find out where did it start? What happened? Who left first? Why did they leave? It's offense. And then he said something like they got offended. Then they left, you know, and so it goes on. So, yeah. Before I launch forth into something else. <laughs> Anything else? We should win, man. We've already won. That's what I'm saying, man. We should be on the winning side, you know. Building churches, storming the devil's positions. You know, not losing. Anything else? All right, shall we pray? Is that okay? You're yes, going to close in prayer anyway. Let's close in prayer and we've got five. Okay. <laughs> Lord, I just come before in the name of Jesus, Lord, and I pray for everybody here, Lord, for all of us that you renew our commitment. We renew our commitment to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Lord, we take up the sword and shield you've given us and put on the armor of God, Lord. Help us to make a difference in the world around us. Help us to have a heart to reach the lost, the broken, the defeated, Lord. Help us to go and help them, Lord. Give us a heart, Lord. Change our hearts here, Lord. In Jesus' name, I ask this. Thank you, Lord. Amen. 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 Amen.